Okay, well, I have 829, so let's get started. And uh, whenever Facebook joins us, Facebook will join us. Um, so as, uh, as you know, this is the uh, concluding class of this year. I won't say of ever because, among other things, other people will be teaching Torah classes. Um, and, I, and I also, I'm going to be teaching at least a couple of classes uh, by Zoom for Sinai during the year to come. I don't know exactly what and when, but, uh, like, but there will be uh, a couple of sessions during the year. And I thought that I would sum up um, the, uh, the Torah in four themes this morning, because I didn't want to just take uh, one section of the Torah. That didn't seem right. So I jotted down four themes, um, and I'm going to expand on each of them and hopefully tie them all together. Uh, and I'm going to start off with the, the, the first theme of the Torah, which is um, curious because you would think it's the biggest theme, but it really only gets, uh, well, I guess two chapters, is creation. Um, the creation of the world, if you think about it, is really very briefly recounted in the Torah. Um, there are six days of creation, and it takes a chapter, and then, then you've got a world. And, and we take that for granted um, because we're used to it. But it's a very strange thing if you're going to talk about the creation of the world, which is the biggest event that happens in the Torah, after all, because it's the event that everything else is contingent on, and yet it passes by very quickly. Um, and part of this is, I think, one thing that we will see continuously, which is that the operations of God are basically enigmatic. That is, we can't really understand them. And so when we're talking about that which God does, we can't actually give, as we do with human beings, long psychological explanations because we don't understand it. So we can recount God's actions, but more and even that gets abbreviated, uh, but there isn't much more to say. Uh, I will tell you, although I don't, I, I don't put a lot of credit in this, but it's kind of a neat idea. Um, and I'll tell you why I don't put that much credit in it. Daniel Borston, who used to be the head of the Library of Congress, said that the reason that science arose in the Western world, and part of the reason I don't put much credit in this is we know much more now about how much science arose in the Eastern world as well, but he was, uh, he was speaking in an earlier time when I think we didn't quite realize um, Although surely technology um, and the Enlightenment happened in the Western world much, much more than the East. Um, anyway, uh, I could talk about that much more, but I'm going to leave that aside. He said the reason that he thought technology arose in the Western world and science did is that we have a creator God. And so if you're going to imitate God, you have to be creative. And human creativity was always thought of in some ways as divine and not a bad thing. Um, and I, I certainly like that idea, uh, although um, it's, uh, as I said, it's very, very, it's one of those very broad ideas that's very hard to prove. Um, and, uh, and as we know, creativity has a downside too, uh, but that's also true of God's creativity, since what happens right after is that human beings get put in the Garden of Eden and do what God says they shouldn't do. So the second, theory, the second um, theme, uh, which is sort of 1A, is human nature. And that is that God creates this world with creatures who have the capacity to defy that which God wishes. And, and it's clear that God could have made them different, but doesn't. Um, and, and as a result, all of subsequent history is real history. Because if human beings do exactly what God wants, then there's no history. There's just automation, basically, right? There's an assembly line. 
um, human beings are parts as opposed to independent agents. And so the first theme is creation, including the creation of human beings who have the ability to be independent agents. Um, this is one of the things, I mean, leaving, uh, leaving the more sophisticated animal life aside that we don't understand, like maybe the octopus and the, uh, and the dolphin. Um, but by and large, animals operate by instinct. And human beings actually can override instinct by thought, by ratiocination, right? Like your instinct might be to hit that person, but then you think that's not a good idea, I shouldn't hit that person. Or your instinct might be to eat that thing, but then you think it's not a good idea, I shouldn't eat that thing. Um, as far as we know, at least in the animals we observe, it's not like the lion says, you know, that, that, that uh, antelope looks really good, but I'm, I'm going to let him go because I'm going to override my instinct um, and be compassionate. Uh, so, 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 so human beings are created with this sort of dual function. They're, they have independent will and they also have instincts and they have a constant battle within them and with God. And that's the setup. Um, as you know, it does not go well, right? First you get Adam and Eve, and then you get Cain and Abel, and then you get the Tower of Babel, and, and uh, well, first you get the flood of Noah, and then you get the Tower of Babel, so the, the rebellion of human beings is a, is set up as an almost constant at the beginning of the Torah. There's creation, there's people, and people are, are very problematic. The second theme is, and, and I actually, I wrote this this morning actually on, uh, on social media, the first verse I learned as a kid was Genesis 12.1. I remember, we all had to memorize that verse. Um, go from your house, your father's house, the place where you were born, to the land that I will show you. In other words, the beginning of, and, and this was not just me. I mean, that was often the first. It was in the yeshiva that I studied in for, for the first uh, 10 years of my life in Harrisburg. Um, the first verse they taught was God's charge to Abraham. And the reason that they started with that, I think their reason was that's the beginning of the Jewish people. But what we took from that on a deeper level, on a sort of symbolic level, is that life is a journey that it always be, it begins with a journey. And the theme of journey follows throughout the Torah because not only does Abraham journey, but then most of the Torah is composed of, and now I'm talking the five books, most of the Torah is composed of the Israelites' journey in the desert. So the Torah is about a journey as well. And then even after they get into the land, which I'll talk about later, um, there are continuous journeys because there's exile and there's return and there's exile again. And Jewish history is very, very bound up with the idea of, uh, of journey and, um, and, what, and what the promised land means and the ways in which it is difficult to attain the promised land. So that is the second, the second theme. After creation, I would say journey and wandering is the great second theme, and then is the revelation of God. Because at the beginning, to the, to the inhabitants of the book, as opposed to the reader of the book, God is very mysterious, right? God comes to Abraham, but doesn't really say, God doesn't say, by the way, I'm the creator of the world, and this is what I do, and no, he just tells him to go. And he comes to Moses and similarly, and then he works all these wonders in Egypt and still doesn't really reveal, I want to say himself, herself, itself, God's self. Um, and in fact, when Moses says to God, tell me who you are, they're not going to believe me. So who should I say sent me? Um, and... Uh, God says, asher I am that I am, which, first of all, of course, is not really much of an answer. Um, it's uh, David Steinberg in his biblical routines has a bit about that. It's, Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? And God says, whom? 
And so Moses goes, whom? And God says, I am that I am. And Moses says, thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. You know, and he's right. It's like, I, what is I am that I am? And but but even more interestingly, Moses never goes to the people and says, I am that I am sent me. So there's a sense in which Moses is asking this for himself, not because the people are going to really ask him who sent you. Um, but it also emphasizes the fundamental mystery of God's self. We don't know who God is. Moses gets close, but we still don't understand really what Moses understands. What does it mean that goes, Moses sees God's back? We don't really know what that means. And therefore, when the Israelites gather around the mountain, they're scared. And God's revelation is in the Torah less a revelation of self than a revelation of law. This is what you should do, and this is what you should do. God only reveals God's self at the very beginning, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Um, and, and then you can't have any other gods, and you should do this, and you should do that, and you should do the other thing. Um, and so we understand that God's manifestation in this world is what God wants of us, as opposed to who God is. And that's the third theme, is after creation and journey is revelation. Um, and revelation, as, as Abraham Joshua Heschel put it a long time ago, to reveal something means that it must have been hidden, which is obvious but brilliant. Like, I'd never thought of it before I read Heschel writing about it. Like, if God's revealing, then before that, obviously, it wasn't revealed, right? The magician reveals something that's been hidden before. So God was hidden from human beings until revelation, and then God is, to some extent, revealed. Um, and then lastly, <coughs> even though there are a million sub-themes, lastly is the promise of the land. And the promise of the land is a really um, ambiguous and difficult promise because even though there are um, idealized images of the land, right? Milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, when you get to the land, you don't, it's not an idealized place. Not anywhere in the Bible is the land perfect. Uh, and the, um, the, that's why weirdly, like in Jeremiah, there's nostalgia for the wilderness. Now the wilderness was miserable, right? But God, but there's this, it's almost like a couple that remembers the struggling years more, more um, fondly. God says, remember when you followed me in the wilderness in a land unsown, because in the wilderness, it was just God and the Israelites. But now in the land, there are all these other tribes and there are, there are systems of government and there are complicating things that make, uh, you know, there's something pure about a religion in the wilderness than about a religion that has a temple and priests and organizations and bureaucracy and all of that. Um, but the, the reality of human life is without institutions, you can't sustain things. Um, that's why uh, Gershom Sholem, the great scholar of Kabbalah, used to say that what happens in Jewish history and in the history of religions in general is there's a revelation. Then that revelation, in order to be preserved, gets somehow institutionalized in schools, in houses of worship, in whatever, so that you can teach people the revelation. And because it gets institutionalized, it gets less dramatic and beautiful and moving and so on. And then mysticism comes along to try to reinvigorate the original revelation, to recapture the original revelation. Um, and uh, I think, by the way, this is part of what you're seeing now. Like in, this, in, in Judaism, there is a spiritual 
like seeking among younger people that involves things like psychedelic drugs and meditation and so on. And what are all those things? They're an attempt to recapture something of the original experience that's very hard to do if you're sitting in fixed pews and you have someone say open to page so-and-so. I mean, just think about the difference between that, you know, and standing around the mountain in the wilderness with thunder and lightning. It's very different. Um, and so the same thing is true when you get to the promised land, which is it involves actually setting up systems of government and of, uh, and, and of everyday life, of commerce, of economics, and so on, that are very, uh, that are much less inspiring, um, but essential. And, and that's sort of how the Torah ends, with the Israelites struggling with the reality of becoming a normal people, in a sense. That is, a people who live in the land. And that legacy, interestingly enough, of struggling to become a normal people, but feeling yourself not a normal people, persists to this day, right? It's exactly what you see in Israel now, because I was just reading a commentary magazine, had a symposium on the 75th anniversary of Israel, as did every Jewish magazine of every description. And, and in it, one of, the, one of the contributors was Brett Stevens. And so he said, like, the difference is that Israel is a purpose-driven nation. He said, if tomorrow all the Belgians got French passports, Nothing essential would change, even though they might not like the idea that they're not Belgians anymore. He said, but you can't imagine all the Israelis getting another passport because they have a mission to be Israel, which is different from the mission to be Belgian. Um, and that is true. It's a purpose-driven. It's not just nationalistic. It's like we're here for a reason in the world. Um, and, and some nations have that and some nations don't. But Israel has it very, very powerfully, and it comes from this essential ambiguity that is built into the system, which is you, uh, you want this pure religious drive, but it has to be domesticated in order for it to continue. Um, and, and I think, by the way, in Israel today even, you see this in the combined admiration and dis and disapproval that the settlers evoke in in Israelis there's a part that admires them because they have that sort of pure pioneering spirit that goes back to the purpose driven but the part that wants it to be like ordered and regulated and to live in peace with your neighbors and so on and so forth that part doesn't like it but that tension is built into the system it just is uh, and and so I think that it, in, in that way, the Torah very powerfully reflects the different sides of human beings, which are, on the one hand, the side that wants inspiration and excitement and poetry and all those sorts of things. It's like in Brave New World. I don't know if you ever read that book, but this... In Brave New World, they invent this drug called Soma. And Soma basically makes you happy, right? And you can live a very happy life. Um, and, and the savage, and he's called the savage, doesn't want to take it. And he says, I want unhappiness. I want sin. I want evil. I want inspiration. I want poetry. I want, he wants all those things that make, that we think of, of sort of peaks and valleys of life. And that Tension is uh, is deep within us and, and is differently distributed in different human beings. But the fact, to go back to the beginning, that we start with a journey suggests that we'll never extirpate, we'll never get rid of that inspirational beginning, we'll never be satisfied with just, okay, let's all settle down and, and you know, um, live lives of what Thoreau called quiet desperation. Um, okay, so there is a, a summary of the major, of, of, I mean, you could divide it up very differently. I, could, I thought of other ways that you, could, uh, that you could talk about the themes of the Torah. 
Um, you could talk about it certainly in terms of peoplehood, because most of the Torah is about the Jewish people and their mission in the world. You could talk about it in terms of the way in which God tries to create a world of goodness and the struggles with that. Um, but I will leave it at that for now and, and ask if there are questions or comments along the way. And also I'll take a look and see if there are any here. Uh, maybe the need for more direct experience is what brought about Christianity mysticism. Well, it brought about, uh, it brought about, there's certainly true that Christianity, at the time, by the way, as you may or may not know, um, at the time that Jesus came along, there were a lot of messiahs. Like Jesus was not the only messiah that was running around at the time. Um, well, he was clearly the most successful subsequently, but but the the um, the belief that a messiah has come, which happened again, I mean, it happened a couple times in Jewish history, David Rouvaini and especially Shabtai Tzvi, the belief that a Messiah has come is another way of reinvigorating this mystical sense, no question about it. Um, and it has happened. Um, and not only has it happened, it's not just that the Messiah has come, but also um, the expectation that the Messiah has come, will come, is a very invigorating. I mean, Chabad is a mystical sect. Right? Chabad is very deeply influenced by Kabbalah. I don't know if you know this or not. And, and both the Kabbalistic expectation and the Messianic expectation, both of them give this inspirational kick to, uh, to people in a way that, you know, um, let's raise money to build a university in Israel doesn't. Yeah. What? Well, Rambam, Rambam is an interesting example, Maimonides, is an interesting example of a non-ecstatic Jewish believer because his messianic, his very famous messianic um, passage at the end of the Mishnah Torah says basically that the world is going to continue the way it is now. But when it says the lion will lay down with the lamb, what it really means is big nations and small nations are going to get along with each other. But he didn't have like the frenzied messianic belief that someone like a Bravanel had. But a Bravanel, remember, remember, or I will tell you, but a Bravanel was the part of the generation that got kicked out of the Spanish Inquisition. Right. So he really thought when catastrophe befalls the Jewish people, they almost always there's almost always an increase in messianic expectation. And part of the reason that's so is because that's what the Talmud says is going to happen. There are going to be Chevlei Hamashiach, which means the birth pangs of the Messiah. In other words, the pain will precede the birth. So during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, there was tremendous messianic expectation. Um, afterwards, it sort of got damped down and people didn't talk about it because obviously the Messiah didn't come. Well, there's a mention of the Messiah, but it's not nearly as emphasized as it is later. There's a mention that there's, I mean, there are, first of all, there are hints like the scepter will never depart from Judah. Jacob says that as part of his final blessing. And, and it says there will arise someone eventually to lead you to, but, but it's not nearly as like unambiguous or, or, meant, or, or talked about as it is in rabbinic literature. And they take the hints as Christianity does too and put it together and create this figure. But even in rabbinic literature, um, one of the things that's interesting is the Messiah to the rabbis could very easily just be a successful military leader. Like when people thought Herzl was the Messiah, they weren't crazy. They were like, Rabbi Akiva thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah, but Bar Kokhba lost, so he wasn't the Messiah. Well, if Herzl succeeds and he brings all the Jews back to Israel, then maybe he does right, fit the criteria of the Messiah. Um, so it doesn't have to be, we sort of have, there are the supernatural believers, and then there are the people who believe that it'll be very this-worldly. Um, so, yeah.
Well, yeah. So Moses, so Moses is not Moses is not a messianic figure. Um, he's uh, and and in fact, there are things in the Bible itself that that deliberately diminish Moses. Right, the fact that he sins, that he doesn't he doesn't get to go into the land, that he's not mentioned at the Pesach Seder. Um, there's an attempt to say Moses was the greatest of human beings, but that's, but a human being, still a human being. Um, so, uh, that's why we say like, you know, that they, I don't know if they still do, but a lot of Christians used to go around wearing this bracelet, you know, what would Jesus do? No Jew would ever wear, what would Moses do? You just wouldn't do it, Right. Because I, I, because Moses would sometimes get it right and sometimes get it wrong. So you don't, in other words, there's no, there's no single example in Jewish history of someone who is faultless, is faultless. And one of the, one of the objections to rabbi worship, and there are, I won't, you know, I mean, there are movements in Judaism that really worship there. One of the objections is exactly that, which is we don't, we don't make superhumans out of humans. Um, we're not supposed to do that. And this, by the way, was an early cri criticism. You may or may not know when the, there were these fights between the um, Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. One of the savage criticisms of the Hasidim was that they made their rebbies into demigods. You know, they made them way holier than they in fact should be thought of because they were human beings like everybody else. And, and it shows the need that people have to worship and idealize human beings. And you see this, by the way, in politics, not just in religion, where people think of certain political leaders as somehow inviolable. Um, but I think that, that, that Judaism ought to, ought ought to remind us that that's a bad idea. If you don't do it with Moses, then you certainly shouldn't do it, you know, with Erdogan. <laughs> Picked a safe one. Picked a safe one. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I can give you a couple of different explanations why Moses didn't get to see the promised land. One is maybe not making him an idol. You don't want to make him perfect. The second is that he might not have been the right leader. He was the right leader for the desert. It doesn't mean he's the right leader for the promised land. Um, the third is to, to prepare the people for the reality of change. You know, if Moses gets to go into the promised land, they're going to have a really hard time having someone else be the leader in the promised land. But if you left them behind in the desert, it's a lot easier to accept that someone else could come along and be the leader in the promised land. And then in the Midrash, God basically says to him, without going through the whole spiel, God basically says to him, you're a person. And this is what happens to people. They die. And you're no different than anyone else. You die too. So he doesn't get to, nobody gets to have everything they want. Moses got to have a lot, and Moses got to see God face to face, got to be the leader of the people, got to be the major character in Jewish history and in the Torah. So there was something he didn't get. Yes. Right. But here's the secret about the Torah. It's not true. Right? It's not true that if you keep kosher and you keep this, that you'll necessarily have a happy life, right? Yeah. It's, and in fact, ultimately, ultimately, you're supposed to do these things because you're supposed to do these things, not for a reward. So. Decides you get some things and you don't get others. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that's that's the that's the unsolvable 
you know, pain of life is that that's the reality. And, and everybody has elements of their life almost without exception where they think you could have just given me this. I mean, you know, it's like I could have just had this wouldn't have been so hard. Um, so Moses too, Moses too. Well, you need, you need a Messiah because in order for this world to be redeemed, somehow human beings have to do it. They messed it up and they have to do it, at least in the Jewish tradition. And God doesn't sweep down and make everything perfect. Um, and so it's more of a struggle than that. And I think that that's, it's a very human way. There is a world to come and a world to come maybe God superintends that but in this world it's supposed to be human beings that do it and and the other thing that it does is it moves the direction of hope from the past to the future right so and also you know jews use it in a very particular way which is it's why you have a kisei eliyahu at every bris because every kid could be the messiah um and so it's a constantly renewing hope uh so I think those are probably the reasons. And, um, and I, I, I like the idea that deliverance will come ultimately as a product of, of human effort and ingenuity and so on and so forth, um, as opposed to just one grand miracle will get where God will sweep down and everything will be fine. Right. I, you, right. I, I agree with you. So maybe, yeah. So maybe it was inevitable that creation had to be a mystery. As you said, we're not going to get physics in the Torah. And well, how much more is there to talk about? Um, although you could detail creation a little bit more, but, but all right. Um, we got three good comments I want to share with you on the Facebook page. One is uh, from Michal, who says about Messianism being an age as opposed to a person. That is certainly true that some thinkers think of it as an age. It depends who you talk to. Um, Maimonides is more on the age side. Thinkers like Abravanel and the mystics are more on the person side. Um, I think in modern times, the liberal movements think more of a messianic age than they do of a messianic individual. That is, human beings together in concert will create a more messianic age. Um, Chaya says, uh, um, to begin again, you need a clean slate. And that's why Moses uh, is left, because to start in Israel, you have to start anew. So you can't start anew if you've got Moses looking over your shoulder. Um, and then uh, David says, and yes, I think this is a nice uh, way of thinking about it. By keeping kosher and doing things the Torah require us, it makes us uh, question and then get us closer to God, which will bring us a happier, fulfilled life. One hopes so. Um, I think that at least in theory, it should work that way. Um, uh, and then Michal says, how do we deal with radical messianists in our age that are putting us at risk? That is an excellent question. Next. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually think America is another, America and Israel, as far as I know, and, and there could be others, but this is just as far as I know, are the two countries that were both founded on an idea as opposed to just, we're here, and so we have a country. Um, and, and I don't know of any other nations that may actually, weirdly, maybe Australia, Maybe Australia, because people did go to Australia. I don't know if they went there with an idea. They went there as a penal colony. So um, maybe just, you know, yeah. No, maybe not. Maybe beer um, was. But, uh, but is Israel and America are both that way, but they're very different in other ways. Um, 
because one was based on the idea of a heterogeneous population, and one was based on the idea of a basically homogeneous population, which makes them very different. Um, this is, I think, this is my pet theory for, for why America both has the problems it does and has the great virtues it does, which is when you mix populations, you get tremendous dynamism, creativity, ingenuity. Like, I mean, you look around at the people who've started companies, they come from all over the world and they come to America and do it. But it is also true that when you look at countries that have homogeneous populations that are all the same, their social trust and their closeness tends to be much greater. So there is both, so it's, it's the question of immigration all over the world, right? On the one hand, people will say immigration is good because it creates dynamism and growth and creativity and so on and so forth, and all that's true. And then other people will say, but it creates social dislocation and differences in, in, in neighborhoods and, and anger between groups, and that's also true. And both things are real in America, um, and, and I just think that that's, that's why it really is a great experiment in human, because if we could overcome the bad parts of different groups mixing, I mean, it's why America still is by far the greatest economy in the world, has by far the most innovation in the world. There's a reason for that. So anyway, that's my little America, God bless America speech. So if they could intermix the groups successfully, I think that it would be a good thing for Israel to be able to do. The problem is it's not, I mean, it's an intermixture of some groups. So there are lots of different kinds of Jews in Israel. That's one kind of group. Then there are groups that are, that cathect to the Israeli, like the Druze who cathect to the Israeli mission without being Israeli, that's another group. And then there are groups that are there that are actively hostile to the mission of the country, and that's a different group. So it's, a, it, so it's again, it's different from the United States and calls for different questions and, God willing, one day solutions. I don't know what those solutions are, um, but, uh, but I'm going I'm to stay away from that for the moment, except, except to say that this is, you know, um, None of these things in a certain way should be surprising because they all arise from like the human, the, the same human um, foibles and, and glories that you see in the Torah. They just do. And when, you know, when the Egyptians say there's this foreign people and they're reproducing too much and we don't want them, it's like you hear every, every ethnic distinction and fear and so on that still exists today and is still, um, you know, still roils under the surface. And, and sometimes you can put something of a damper on it, like in Northern Ireland, but there are still tensions there because it's not easy to get people to agree when they have real differences. And that's our great, and that's in some ways the great human mission, you know? Um, we will either succeed ultimately in doing that, or uh, either we or we will have a very bad end at our own hand or at the hand of some AI chatbot that will come and take us all over. One of the two. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. Yes. So Mashiach ben Yosef is the Mashiach that dies in battle, and the Mashiach ben David is then the Mashiach that continues on. And so um, it's true, this is, this is a rabbinic uh, distinction that, that derives from text in the Torah, but isn't exactly elaborated in it, that there are going to be two, that there's a two-stage um, messianic process. Um, and, uh, and, and since there's going to be this great battle, it will, and since I think probably because the Torah saw so many kings die in battle, the idea was that the first king will fight for Israel and die, and then, and then the second king will arise as a result of the ultimate triumph of that battle and continue um, to live on. But one of, the, one of the things that is in some ways beautiful about 
both the messianic idea and the idea of the afterlife in the Jewish tradition is there's nothing you have to believe. That is, there's no specific pattern that everybody believes that the Messiah is going to be like this or like that or like the other. Um, so you're, I mean, so Maimonides would say you have to believe in a Messiah, but he wouldn't say you have to believe in the Messiah the way that it's laid out in the Mishnah Torah. If you look at his principles of faith, he doesn't say it has to be this way or that way. Um, so it's a very, and, and by the way, there is a, there's a, a really interesting debate um, among scholars in, in, that's summarized in the title of a book by Menachem Kellner, who is an Orthodox Jewish scholar. He wrote, Must a Jew Believe Anything? And he doesn't mean by that, does a Jew have to believe in God? Because obviously, but he's basically saying, like, are there dogmas in Judaism that everyone has to subscribe to? Because if you look at the Yigdal, for example, which is Maimonides' Principles of Faith, a lot of them have been disagreed with in one way or another by other Jewish scholars. And so it's real. there are certain sects of Judaism that will say you have to believe this, that, and the other thing. But there are really very few things um, that are dogmatic beliefs that, and, and certainly none of them around afterlife or Messiah, much more the things that affect how people conduct themselves in this world are the, are the dogmatic beliefs. So, yeah. Uh, very quickly on reincarnation, which is called Gilgul Nishamot, I would say this is one of those things that it is not a mainstream Jewish belief, but it is mainstream in Kabbalah. So to the extent that Kabbalah is part of the mainstream, and that's a big argument that I'm not going to enter into, it's um, so the mystics, I mean, famously in Sfat, they were always talking about reincarnation, um, is this belief that all the souls come back, but they don't necessarily, at least in, in, in the mystic, I, they don't necessarily even come back as human beings. Sometimes they do, but sometimes not. Um, sometimes they come back as animals or insects or you know, other living things, seriously. Uh, so, um, but I would say that this is part of, the, part of the impossibility, as anybody knows, who has ever had someone close to you die, it's impossible to understand. It's like, how could that person have been there yesterday and not be there today? It's just like the human brain is not configured to understand that. So every way in which that person is still there has been thought of, you know, um, reincarnation, afterlife, resurrection of the dead, ultimately all those ways. And all of them have a place in Judaism, um, We'll see. We'll see. One, two, three. Yeah. So there, there, I mean, those of you that have taken these seminars, where they try to explain, there are two problems. Um, and by the way, for those of you who want to see these mathematical formulas of the Torah thoroughly debunked uh, by a biblical scholar, look up Jeff Tigay, T-I-G-A-Y. He has an article online about these things um, that here are the problems with the discovery, at least some of the problems. One is that Hebrew spelling differs from manuscript to manuscript. So you just pick the number that fits. Right. Um, two is that the explanations keep changing as science does. Right. The explanation. I remember I remember once seeing a video from the Kabbalah Center that proved that they predicted the Oslo Accords. Then when the Oslo Accords went south, <laughs> seriously, they removed the video because they no longer predicted the Oslo Accords. And that's part of the problem is like if you think that the Torah predicts everything that happens, then when something that happens changes or or is disproved, then you have to go back and explain how that wasn't really what the Torah meant. It now means this. That's the second, and there's a lot, there's a lot of that. And then the third problem is um, 
there's something ethically distasteful about the idea that the Torah predicted Hitler. The Torah predicted Hitler, and if that's true, then why didn't great scholars know that and, and, and head it off? And if it's not true, that means all of this was going to happen from the beginning of time and nobody could stop it. And that there's a lot. I, so, no, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the Discovery Institute. And I, I will give you one, uh, one uh, example. Um, Amos Funkenstein, who is a great scholar of both Jewish tradition and also of science, who uh, used to teach at UCLA, and I was privileged to take his classes before he passed away. He was young, unfortunately. He was one of 10 university professors in the UC system. He could teach at any campus, any class he wanted, any semester. I mean, that's how, that's how much the UC system thought of him. He was remarkable. Anyway, um, so I remember when we were in rabbinical school, they took us to a rabbi, his name is not important at the moment, who gave us this stuff. Um, and I remember saying to the rabbi at the time, I said, live and evil. Live backwards is evil. I said, but nobody in English makes a big deal out of that because we don't. So the fact that you're making a big deal out of that in Hebrew, which also has a three-letter root, root system, of course you're going to get stuff like that. Um, he was not impressed. So, but he made a big deal out of the fact that olam means the world and olam also means eternity. And that proves that the Torah knew... Einstein's theory about space and time. And so the next day, I happened to have my class with Funkenstein at UCLA, and Funkenstein said, it's a good theory, except actually the two words come from two different roots. And I said, thank you, Professor. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. What do I think about the future of Torah in regards to women, men? I think people will continue to disagree about it. <laughs> really, that's what I think. I think people will continue to disagree about it for a long time to come. Um, well, it, it depends what you're asking. If you're asking whether Jews will agree about the implications for men and women, no, they won't agree. Um, if you're asking whether how women in the modern world can understand uh, the subordinate place of women in the Torah, my answer is it was an ancient society, and there are a lot of things we understand that they didn't. What do you mean by changes in the Torah? Do you mean change the text of it? People don't change the text. What they do is change the practice. So we have women rabbis, and we have women who sit together, and we, you know, we change the practice over time, as I think we realize things that I believe the ancient world was not aware of. Um, and also, it's not just things that they weren't aware of. It's also technologies that they didn't have. I mean, the greatest, uh, at quoting my brother, who's a sociologist, the greatest single driver of change in the modern world was the pill. Once women didn't have to have children at 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18, they didn't have to have 20 children and, and every act of sex didn't result in pregnancy. It was inevitable that the social position of women was going to change. Um, and, and, and thousands of years ago, People didn't think that way. I mean, they tried primitive methods of birth control, but not, they were not successful enough to create a social revolution. So, Nora. Right. So I'll close, I'll close with this. Let's close with resurrection, since we may have the class again sometime in the future. Um, so, right. So I, under, I think for modern people, the idea of resurrection is much harder to believe than that the soul lives on. Um, but I will say... 
two things in favor of resurrection, even though I also find it harder to believe than that the soul lives on. One is there is something nice about the Jewish belief in resurrection because it affirms the goodness of the body, that the body's not a bad thing, which means that in the end of time when we're resurrected and we're in the perfect state, we'll actually have a body. We won't just all be ghosts, which I think is a nice, since Judaism doesn't see the body as evil and bad, that's a good thing. And I will tell you what the Talmud says, and we may as well close with words of the Talmud as opposed to my words. It says, basically in Sanhedrin, it says, look, you may have a hard time believing that, you know, a, a, a human being can arise from the dust of, but God made you from dust in the first place. You were nothing before, so why couldn't God do it again? And on that, thank you very much.